Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Hear the word of the Lord. I think it goes without saying, church, that people respond to suffering in all kinds of different ways. All kinds of different ways. Uh, some, some try to ignore suffering. Some try to escape suffering. Some try to push through suffering. Some simply resign themselves to suffering. Um, I think if we're honest, most of us probably do a uh, answer E, all the above, <laughs> and, and mix those four responses together in whatever sort of recipe response keeps our pain in suffering as low as possible. But I want you to consider very carefully this question now with me. What, what does faith look like in the midst of suffering? So if those are some examples of different ways that we can tend to respond to suffering, what, what does faith look like in the midst of suffering? Is, is faith a pervasive optimism? Is it a lemons into lemonade attitude that refuses to entertain negative thoughts or emotions? Is faith a refusal to stop believing in yourself? A high self-esteem or some sort of general confidence that somehow, in some way, everything will work out for good in the end. 
Is, is biblical faith claiming the promises of God? Singing, blessed be the name, no matter how hard things get. Or responding to the ubiquitous, how are you, brother? With a consistent, better than I deserved. Is that biblical faith? What what would you say? What, What would you say distinguishes the presence of real faith? The kind of faith that the Bible holds up and commands in the midst of our darkest hour. We've spent most of the last two months in a series called Songs of Lament, in which we're looking to the Word of God to learn how God created us to respond to sorrow. And the first Sunday of that series, back in September, I laid out four marks of a biblical song of sorrow, or what we call a song of lament from the book of Psalms. So to review, they are one, come before God, two, pour out your lament, your sorrow, your complaint to him. Three, declare your trust in the Lord. And four, petition or ask God to intervene for his glory and our good. And all four of those elements have have surfaced consistently in all six of the Psalms that we've looked at thus far in this series. And in addition to all four of those elements surfacing, there has been this discernible progression from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm, from struggle and sorrow to confidence and joy. Not so in Psalm 88. In many ways, this is the basement of the Psalms. Uh, There's no declaration of trust in the Lord. There's no confident petition. There's no climactic, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. It, It begins with sorrow, it ends with sorrow, and the middle is all sorrow. I mean, look at verse 3. How's this thing begin? For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Now look at verse 18. How's this thing end? You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's it. That's the end of the psalm. In summarizing the entire song, Derek Kidner simply observes, there is no sadder prayer in the Psalter. So what am I doing picking this one? (laughs) There's a reason. As soon as I decided we were going to preach a series from the Songs of Lament, I knew I wanted to preach this one. There's a reason for that, friends. Because Psalm 88 teaches us that that Christian faith, real faith, it's not an escape from sorrow. It doesn't ignore sorrow. It doesn't push through sorrow, nor does it resign itself to sorrow. Biblical faith deals honestly and constructively with sorrow. But 
it doesn't always look or sound like we think it's supposed to look or sound. Hear that. So biblical faith, real faith may include claiming God's promises. It may result in singing, blessed be the name. It may reply with a cheery, better than I deserve. But none of those responses capture the fundamental essence of genuine biblical faith. Hear this. Psalm 88 is an expression of genuine biblical faith. Costly faith. God-glorifying faith. But we tend to miss it. We tend to forget it. And when we miss it and when we forget it, some really bad things happen, okay? First, if we miss the evidence of real biblical faith in Psalm 88, we'll fail to recognize the evidence of real biblical faith in the lives of people around us. And in addition to that, we'll never be able to help them recognize where God is actively at work in their life, even in their suffering. Okay, second... Fail to miss the real faith in this psalm. The counsel that you give to people in the midst of their darkest hour will tend to yoke them with unachievable and ultimately unbiblical standards of faith. Leaving them even more discouraged than they were when they first sat down to talk to you. And third, if we miss the genuine faith in this psalm, we will be ill-equipped To glorify God in our greatest personal sorrow and suffering. When those those responses that I mentioned earlier, all of them seem just immeasurably out of reach. For at least those three reasons, we need this psalm. We need this psalm because Psalm 88 shows us what real faith looks like in the midst of suffering by showing us exactly what it is that distinguishes faith from unbelief. So here it is. Here's the big idea. Okay? Real faith responds to the darkest affliction by refusing to turn away from the God who saves. That's the point. Real faith responds to the darkest affliction by refusing to turn away from the God who saves. What does that tell us, church? Real faith isn't pervasive optimism. It isn't high self-esteem or unflagging confidence in a better tomorrow. The fundamental essence, the core of real biblical faith is a refusal to turn away from the God who saves. That's what biblical faith is. And, And Psalm 88 makes this point in at least two ways, okay? Two-point sermon this morning. Point number one. First, it sets the stage by reminding us, here's the first point, that the affliction God ordains includes experiences of unremitting darkness. The affliction God ordains includes experiences of unremitting darkness. We, We don't know exactly who this guy, Heman the Ezraite, is, the reported author of the psalm, but we do know this. He experienced a life of unremitting darkness. Look at verse 3. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. 
What does that tell us, friends? He's, he's not just experiencing trouble or navigating trouble. His, his life, his soul is full of trouble. He's overflowing with trouble, and, and he's not doing well. He's struggling. And more accurately, he, he feels like he's barely alive. Sheol is a Hebrew word for the realm of the dead. So he's essentially saying, the trouble that fills my soul is killing me from the inside out. And evidently, other people have noticed. Look at verse 4. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. So in biblical poetry, the pit is what? It's the realm of darkness and suffering. It's a place of utter helplessness where barring outside intervention, death is inevitable. And in verse 4, the pit appears to be both figurative, symbolic, and literal. Okay, It's figurative in the sense that the psalmist has absolutely no strength to keep going in life. No strength. He's past the point where his ability to endure is merely being tested. He's he's long past the point where his resolve to keep living is fading. He is now at the point where he is done. He's finished. He has nothing left. It is symbolic, but it's, it's also physical in the sense that he feels like physical death is inevitable on account of his unrelenting trouble. So he's not just a man who has no strength, he's what? Like one set loose among the dead. Look at verse 5. I'm like the slain that lie in the grave. In other words, when Heman writes this song, he writes it feeling like a man who has already died. So he's not speaking as a, as a living man, he's speaking as a dead man. And I think some of you know exactly what he feels like. If not in the present, perhaps in your past, if not in your past or present, maybe you will in your future or through the experience of someone close to you. You are barely breathing in a spiritual sense. There's no joy, there's no hope, There's no confidence that things will ever get better. And worst of all, if you're being honest, it feels like God himself has utterly forsaken you. Look at verse 5 again. I am, what? Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. Church, there is no greater sorrow than gazing into heaven and pouring out your broken heart to the Lord and hearing nothing in return but silence. I mean, he's he's our creator. He's our king. He's... He's our Savior who promised, what, John 6, 33, that he came to give life to the world, right? 
I mean, surely if, if that means anything, it means that if I'm his child, he won't forget me. And he certainly won't cut me off from his hand of favor and blessing. And yet it appears, it feels like that's precisely what has happened. What, what other explanation can there be for the fact that my soul is so full of trouble that I'm about to die? And then it gets worse. Look at verse 6. He perceives that God, God hasn't been passive in his trouble. Forgetting him, cutting him off. God has been quite active in his trouble. Verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit. You, God. And the region is dark and, and deep. The psalmist, he reveals here his implicit belief that God is sovereign. Over every detail, every person, every, every situation in the entire world. And yet, friend, it is that very belief that right now in this pit is multiplying his pain. Because it's not just that, that I'm going down into the pit. You've put me here, Lord. And it doesn't feel like Joseph's pit. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. You, you're pouring out the fury of your wrath. I feel like you are exceedingly angry with me. You, you have to be. And I wouldn't say that to you, God, if this were the first time. But, but this isn't the first time. All I've known for year after year is wave after wave upon sorrow. Verse 7, and now I am utterly overwhelmed. I, I used to have the comfort of my friends. At least, no, no matter how bad things got, I knew that no matter how far away you felt, at least because they were close by, I wasn't alone but now you've taken them away too. And they haven't just forgotten about me. They, they shun me in horror. You're gone. They're gone. And I can't do anything to escape. Verse 8. I am shut in. And my eyes grow dim through, through sorrow. As, as brightness of the eyes is a sign of life, friends. So dimness of the eyes is a sign of death. The psalmist is telling us that as his troubles in his soul are multiplying, it is literally day by day and year by year destroying and killing his physical body. I mean, you can't read this without shaking. But he's not making it up. So what are we to learn from this man's darkness? Well, I, th I think that there are at least three implications. First, we should not be surprised by sorrow. You should not be surprised by sorrow. Hear that. I think the words of this psalm shatter our, our very American idea that with enough hard work and money and technology that we can fashion for ourselves a life where we avoid the darkest experiences of affliction. 
And that is simply not true. It's simply not true. Unremitting, lifelong suffering in this world is a very real possibility for every one of us. Why? Because, friend, God has not promised to give you your best life now. No matter how many books in Barnes and Noble would want you to think that. And a happy ending to your life on this earth is not guaranteed. I mean, there are times when the Lord brings us back to a point where, where you can look back over your past and, and say with a smile, haven't you been good? But sometimes our life on this earth ends just like Psalm 88, in utter darkness. And if that happens to you or someone close to you, friend, it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. Or that if you only had enough faith, you would recognize that you're not actually living in darkness. (laughs) To the contrary, you are. You really are. And, and on a fundamental level, all of us are. Why? We're, we're groaning with creation, longing for the redemption of our bodies. And there is real comfort to be found in reading Psalm 88 and recognizing that it's not wrong. There's something not wrong with you if this is your consistent experience on earth. It's the first thing we need to learn. We shouldn't be surprised by our sorrow. Okay, second... Second, God understands our sorrow. Matthew, where do you get that? (laughs) For the simple reason that this song's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, okay? The fact that the Lord preserved this lament for, for generation after generation is a loud statement that he is intimately aware of the full spectrum of our emotional experiences of life in a fallen world. And I know enough of you to know that there are plenty of Sunday mornings where some of us walk in and think everything that has to do with God, everything that comes to my mind when I think worship service, all that that represents, that that feels so utterly distant and disconnected and unreal compared to the suffering and sorrow that is racking my heart that I don't even want to go there. I, I don't even want to walk through those doors. Because it doesn't connect. I just want to run. And and if that's you, friend, hear the Lord speaking to you directly through this psalm this morning. Hear God saying to you, I know your sorrow. I understand your pain. And I put laments like Psalm 88 in the Bible so that even when you feel like I'm a million miles away, and not only that, I'm assaulting you on every side, that you still have a song to sing. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons we try to read scriptures and pray prayers and preach sermons and sing songs on Sunday morning that cover the spectrum of Christian experience. Does that make sense? So so there are Sunday mornings where we are, with full integrity and faith, able to come in here and sing a loud song of thanksgiving. Praise to the Lord. The Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is the health and salvation. And you can do that. 
with integrity. Friends, then there are weeks where the most honest song we can bring is a lament of grief and and sorrow. Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. When I am tempted to despair, though I fail to trust your promises, you never fail to hear my prayer. And what Psalm 88 tells us, church, is that God is not more glorified by a song of worship in a major key than he is by a song of worship in a minor key. And we need to remember that and cling to that and believe that. He understands our sorrow and he gives us a song to, to sing in our sorrow. I, I love how Paul Tripp, observing Psalm 88, he simply says this, listen to this quote, Psalm 88 begins and ends in darkness and isolation. It does. Where is hope in the hopeless cry of this psalm? Psalm 88 gives us hope in our grief precisely because it has no hope in it. Think about that. God understands the darkness that we face. That's powerful. We shouldn't be surprised by our sorrow. God understands our sorrow. What's the third implication here? When it comes to this unremitting darkness that comes our way sometimes. Well, third, it is good and right to lament our sorrow to the Lord. It's good and right. When your sorrow feels like this man's sorrow, I think it's easy to conclude not only is nothing good happening to me, but there's absolutely no good way for me to respond to it. I mean, what good will it do? I'm not even confident God's, God's listening. And, and friend, if that's you, remember this. Please see this this morning. The choice to go public with your sorrow, to, to pour it out to the Lord, is a powerful act of protest. Hear that. A declaration of all that is genuinely wrong with this unremitting darkness and a loud statement of the truth that it ought not be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. Think about that. An atheist cannot say that. Why not? Because if our pain and sorrow is merely a byproduct of of natural selection of the inevitable evolution of all things, then a song of sorrow means nothing more than I'm sorrowful. There's no sense of what ought to be in such a view of the world, only an acknowledgement of what is. But when we lament our sorrow as as Christians, we, we join the psalmist in an act of protest, protesting what? That separation from God and separation from man is not the way it was supposed to be. Verse 14, look there. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your your face from me? What's the underlying assumption in those questions, church? The underlying assumption is it's not supposed to be that way. 
Only a Christian can say that. Because we know God didn't create the world that way. Psalm 88 exists because sin exists. And thus, even our songs of lament bear, bear witness to the truth and join all creation in, in longing for the Lord to make right all that sin has made wrong. For this we know, this we know, the sovereignty of God that multiplies the pain of our sorrow is the very sovereignty that preserves the hope of salvation when we feel no hope at all. Look at verse 1. O Lord, what? God of my salvation. What's he saying? He's saying, you have cast me into a pit of dreadful darkness. But the fact that I know that it is you, God, who have brought me in here, and are even right now keeping me in here, reminds me, even in my darkness, that you are able to bring me out. I don't see your salvation. I'm not confident you will be my salvation. I don't even feel like you're listening to my prayer for salvation. But I know that only you can save me. So I'm going to persist in bringing the agonizing weight of all my affliction to you in persistent prayer. That's what he's saying. Point number one, the affliction God ordains includes experiences of unremitting darkness. And Psalm 88 reminds us just how painful that darkness can be. The darkness to which faith must respond, hear this, if our faith is going to deal honestly with the reality of life in a fallen world. So back to our opening question, what does real faith look like? How does real faith respond in the midst of unremitting darkness? The unremitting darkness that God many times ordains for us. Remember what I said earlier. Psalm 88 answers that question by showing us what it is that distinguishes faith from unbelief. Here's point number two. Point number two, the distinguishing mark of faith is the direction you're facing. Think about that. It's the direction you're facing. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1 begins like we, hopefully by this point, expect all psalms of lament to begin. With a cry to the Lord. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. What do we expect after that? Our four marks. We expect exactly what we find. A lament of all his trouble in verses 3 through 8. Eight. Now, if this psalm were like other laments, what usually comes next? A statement of confidence in the Lord. But remember, I said earlier, that is not what happens. It actually never happens in this psalm. So what does happen? Look at verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. I mean, you read that thing, say, what? I, you already did that. 
You're not following the, the recipe here. You, you already cried out to the Lord. In verse 1, this is where you're supposed to say Heman to Ezra Height, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But he doesn't do that. And in verses 10 through 12, look there. He pours out even more confusion to the Lord. I mean, he's basically saying in these three verses, God, I don't understand. I thought you wanted your saving power to be proclaimed in all the earth. If that is true, then why are you allowing me to depart to the land of the dead? Why why are you killing me with wave upon wave of suffering and sorrow? Don't you realize that I can't do what you said you made me to do if you don't come through for me? That's the struggle. So what's he doing when he says that? He's going right back to lamenting his sorrow. And, And two verses later... Picking up in verse 13, it's this same pattern all over again. He calls out to the Lord, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. And then in verse 14, he resumes the questioning lament of verses 10 through 12, which continues straight through till the end of the psalm. The last word of the entire psalm is darkness. So what's the pattern? Cry out to the Lord, lament. Cry out to the Lord, lament. Cry out to the Lord, lament. If you haven't suffered significantly in your life, then perhaps you, you see that, you hear me say that, and you think, this guy sounds like a broken record. <laughs> I mean, what? Why is he refusing to move on to the faith-filled stuff? I mean, the declarations of trust and, and confident petitions. I mean, did, is something wrong? I mean, did, did Psalm 88 just kind of slip in unawares into the Psalter? You know, the editor missed, a, should have sent this back for a little more confidence, a little more petition before it gets in the Bible. Well, I don't think so, friends, because to the contrary, I believe that this psalm reveals the very essence of faith. Why? Because faith is all about the direction you're facing. It's all about the direction you're facing. In our darkest affliction, are we turned Toward the Lord, or are we turned away from the Lord? That's the difference. The essence of real faith is that it responds to the darkest affliction by refusing to turn away from the Lord. And I hope you realize that's that's precisely what the psalmist is doing. He's, He's not able to declare his trust in the Lord. He's not. That's why it's not there, okay? Or, and he's not able to make any confident request of him. Why not? Because his faith is too weak to do that. But hear this, church. The very weakest expression of faith is still worlds different than the sin of unbelief. Even at its weakest point, when all faith can do is, is keep facing God's direction and keep crying out to the Lord in our trouble. Cry to the Lord, lament. Cry to the Lord, lament. Cry to the Lord, lament. It's still real faith. It's real faith. Because the essence of faith is what? A refusal even in our darkest unremitting affliction to turn away from the Lord. I, I love this illustration from, from one of my favorite biblical counselors, uh, David Pallison. Uh, let, let's say that the journey of faith, just follow me here for a second, okay? Let's say that the journey of faith is like trying to drive a car from Richmond to New York City, all right? 
And there are times when you're flying along 95 North at 70, 75 miles an hour. And, and then there are times on this journey of, of faith, this process of learning to trust the Lord, where traffic or road construction forces you to slow down to 35 or 40 miles an hour. And other times when a bad accident brings you to a five-mile-per-hour crawl. And then there are times, which we prefer to avoid at all costs, when blinding snow on the Jersey Turnpike brings you to a grinding halt. Do you know what's true in every one of those scenarios? Even if you're not moving, you're still facing the right direction. Think about that. If all you can do is keep the car pointed toward New York, you can still get there. And when the blinding snow keeps falling for hours, it takes tremendous perseverance, especially with crying kids in the back, (laughs) to keep the car pointed toward New York. That's a good, if imperfect, illustration of what faith looks like in this psalm. It keeps facing God's direction. And there are times of tremendous sorrow when that's all faith can do. It's it's too weak to express confidence in the Lord. It's too fragile to, to make any sort of confident petition. All faith can do is refuse to turn away from talking to God. Verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning, my prayer comes before you. Do, you. do you realize, brothers and sisters, that's the very essence of biblical faith. Real faith responds to the darkest affliction by refusing to turn away from the God who saves So so what does that look like practically? You say, Matthew, you're so excited about this refusing to turn away. I'm tracking. What what in the world does that look like practically? Friend, it means this. In, In the midst of unremitting darkness and affliction, you must not stop praying to God. You must. There there is one thing, one thing that distinguishes that the bottom floor, if you would, the, the core, the foundation, the essence that separates real biblical faith, not immature faith, not halfway faith, real biblical faith from the sin of unbelief. And that is, I do not stop talking to God. I refuse to turn away from him. It's a call to persevering prayer. Day and night, every day, in the morning, we refuse to stop talking to God, even when all you can say to him is, Lord, I am dying. And there are situations where that's all we can do. What Psalm 88 reminds us of, friends, is in those situations, that's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. I mean, think about it. When when Jesus called Peter to walk on the the water, Peter didn't begin sinking because he stopped walking. Why did he begin sinking? Because he took his eyes off Jesus. Real faith in the midst of our suffering is is no different. We, We have to keep our eyes 
want Jesus. We have to refuse to, to turn away from him, even if all we can do is, is keep the eyes of our heart merely pointed in his direction. That's still real faith. So to conclude, remember this. The affliction God ordains includes experiences of unremitting sorrow. And, and when that happens, brothers and sisters, when that happens to you, to people around you, take care that you remember and resolve to not forget the distinguishing mark of faith. It's all about the direction you're facing. Okay, real faith refuses to turn away from the God who saves. And, and when we do that, even to the point of death, what do we find? What if you die doing that? And, and the last word of your life story is darkness. You know what you'll find, Christian? You'll find that the answer to the questions in verses 10 through 12 is the hope of the resurrection. Does God, look at verse 10, does God work wonders for the dead? Yes. Yes, he does. He, he raises us with Christ. Right? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes, they do. He seats us with Christ in the, the heavenly places. Is, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Yes, it is. Because the power of death that could not hold Christ in the grave, Christian, will not hold you either. Are wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yes, they are. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Does God work wonders for the dead? If you are a Christian this morning, God has done that in your life. He brought you out of the dead spiritually. And friend, he will do it physically when he returns. Praise God for the hope of the resurrection. Until the day he returns, praise God that while we're waiting in unremitting darkness, we still have a song of faith to sing. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that as we now put this psalm into practice through song, that it's in the Bible. Lord, you are so good to take us into the basement. And I pray that to whatever degree we came in thinking, oh great, another smiling, cheery Sunday morning, but suddenly disconnected from the reality of my life past the offering plate. That Lord Jesus, your Holy Spirit right now would put this psalm in our mouth and that we would cry out to you and lament.
and cry out to you and lament, cry out to you and lament and refuse to stop even to the day we die. In Jesus' name.